All right, what does this mean? The present threat of idolatry. Okay, let's link this back. So we're going full circle. We've looked at idolatry in the Bible and what it was. We've looked at the effects of technology in our world. Now we're going to go and connect the two together. What is the present threat of idolatry in our world with advancements in technology? Idolatry is taking more subtle forms in our culture, but it's still idolatry. Most of us listen to the Old Testament stories of worshiping Baal and Asherah. And a few, two weeks ago, we were talking about Mount Carmel and Elijah. And we all picture ourselves on team Elijah, right? We don't picture ourselves with the 850 Baal and Asherah prophets and prophetesses and so on, you know, cutting themselves with knives. We don't, we, we, we don't want to be part of that. That's crazy. And at the same time, idolatry is still idolatry and we still worship things as a source of something. Like I need affirmation, I need love, I need joy, I need power, I need money. And we look at other things other than God to give those to us, to provide for us, and so on. It's still there. Technology and media are the new techne that people look to rather than God. And sadly, Christians as well get caught up in this cultural confusion. So are we willing to examine our own hearts tonight to see if this idolatry is in us as well? Well, here's the first thing we want to notice is that technology is neither good nor bad. We noticed that already about idolatry or about images, about creating things out of art and imagination that doesn't mean it's good, doesn't mean it's bad in itself. It's how it's being used. So how do you use technology for good things? It's wonderful. Technology is great. I think we should promote it within limits, within scriptural boundaries, but we should promote it. It can be used in our fulfillment. What is our church's mission statement? To glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? To make disciples. How do we do that? Well, technology is used as a tool. Just look around this room. There's technology. All the lights are part of the media, right? The lights on the stage. What are we doing? We're creating a space where people can come and worship the Lord and quiet their hearts and their souls and connect. Why do we have screens? What happens when we have a screen up there instead of hymn books in front of you like this? Like, think about this for a moment. If I have a hymn book, first of all, my hands aren't free, right? So I can't express worship with my hands when I'm holding a hymn book. That's fine. If you want to hold a hymn book, hold a hymn book. And your head's down as well. You're reading like this instead of on Sundays when we're, or whenever we, we have songs up there, we're looking up. Our voices are up. We're lifting up our voices to the Lord. We're able to keep our eyes focused upwards rather than downwards, right? So we have media in this room. It's great. There are many, many good uses for media. There's software being used to study Bibles, right? Bible study software is a wonderful tool to have. I remember when it was being warned against. Don't get it. It will distract you from studying the Bible. It's a tremendous tool. Smartphones can be used to encourage the body of Christ. Be able to just pick this up, send out a message on signal or a text just saying, hey, brother, praying for you today. I know you're going through a rough time. Maybe here's a verse that I'm you know, thinking of and so on. Great tools to be used. Presentations can be used to visually convey truth. That's what we're doing tonight. Kind of ironic to deal with technology 
to say, technology's bad while we're using technology. That would be rough. It's kind of like the social dilemma, you know? Guys are streaming on Netflix saying, this is bad. You shouldn't be watching this. It's affecting you. Yeah, it's kind of ironic. But it is what it is, and that's why it's a dilemma, right? Smartphones can be used to carry your Bible everywhere with you. Uh, okay, might be good, might not be so good. The bad uses. Well, how do we use technology in a way that's an idol rather than a tool? When we look to the technology as a source of our needs and wants, so this thing is the source of what I need. It's going to give to me affirmation, security, money, fame, power, etc. Sexual fulfillment, companionship, entertainment, or joy. Then it's an idol. And that could go with anything. It could be a book you're reading. It could be the car you're driving. It could be any kind of medium out there that you are using. Apps can distract you from reading your Bible on your smartphone. That's why I have my iPad. When I got this, I knew I'm only using this to read. So on this, I have no other apps. Book apps, Bible app, that's it. I don't have a, I don't think, maybe I do have a calendar on there, but I didn't want emails popping up. I didn't want text messages. I wanted to know that when I was reading the Bible or reading a book, that I was focused on that and I didn't have some, something dinging or flashing on the screen all the time. So get it all out, whatever. It's really hard to do on a phone. Really hard to do with this. You're reading your Bible, text messages are coming up. Unless you turn all those off, which is not very practical, not a great idea. So unless you have some device that you can use without distraction, not a great idea. Anyways, apps can distract you. Social media can be used for envy, gossip, seduction, popularity, cyberbullying, gaining power over others. The screens used in church can entertain people rather than inform them and enable their worship and their participation in worship. They can actually discourage participation rather than encourage participation in worship. And we are a church of ministry partners. We are here to mutually minister to each other. Is our technology being used to encourage that or is it being used just to put on a show and entertain people? Those are questions we have to ask. Secondly, technology is a pursuit of unlimited ability. We've been trying to outdo and overcome our limitations as human beings for a long time. Right back in the beginning, Genesis 3, what did God have to do after Adam and Eve fell? They took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had to block them, not just send them out, but he had to lock the gate of the Garden of Eden so that they couldn't come in. Why? Because he knew if they did, they would go to the tree of life and seek to live forever. They didn't want to be limited in their lifespan. That's a bad thing when you're full of sin and decay. You don't want to live forever like that. That would just mean a life, a forever existence of suffering and pain. But that's exactly what we're doing. Something that has been introduced to me over the last week and some of this remarkably just 
pops up into my attention. Someone uh, shared it with me last Tuesday night after the session. And then, uh, in fact, my daughter yesterday at school, English teachers talking about it, is a, a term called transhumanism. Some of you might be aware of what this is. I wasn't. I didn't realize how realistic this is now. But the idea of transhumanism is that in our evolution process, human beings are going to surpass just being human beings and are going to evolve and start syncing up and integrating with artificial intelligence, other machinery, other memory devices, genetic edits to the code to help us to live 200, 300 years. In fact, they want to edit our genetic code. There's a, there's a company called CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, that is into this genome editing. They not only want to get rid of diseases and so on and, uh, and, and malfunctions inside the, the genetic code of the human, uh, human existence, but they also want to see if they can just remove what makes us bad, you know? Remove what makes us aggressive and violent and jealous and so on. <laughs> you see where this is going? This is a total denial of human nature. A total denial that mankind is sinful through and through. Elon Musk has started a company called Neuralink. Neuralink is a secretive company developing brain-machine interfaces to help people with disabilities. Sounds wonderful. Except if we take McLuhan's test and wonder, where is this going to go in its extreme form? We can see that it's more radical than just helping people that are missing limbs and so on. Facebook announced in 2017 a project involving 60 engineers, uh, an artificial intelligence product that would enable people to start typing with their mind rather than their fingers, called telepathic typing. So Avengers, Star Trek, Star Wars, and so on, these are not far-fetched uh, fictions. This is the goal of humanity without God. This is where they're heading. Unlimited ability, seeking to overcome the limitations that God in his grace and mercy has put on us in our sinful condition. Because if you give us infinite power and infinite life and infinite comforts and everything else, there's no telling how we will destroy ourselves and destroy the world around us. That's why God kept Adam and Eve out of the garden after they'd sinned. Secular pursuit of technology is about unhitching ourselves from the need for a divine source. That's where we're heading. We need to be aware. Next, technology reflects our hunger for transcendence. The only problem is we're looking for it in the wrong place. Just like a golden calf or a bronze serpent, we want something that, to, to look to that ignites praise. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that people who claim to be wise became fools when they denied the very glory of God and creation all around us and in us, the information in our DNA, the information our brains can accept and things like that. They denied all of that, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. We hunger for transcendence. We're looking for it in the wrong places. 
We hunger for something higher than us, something that will fascinate us, something that will amaze us. So we get the new technology because that amazes us. We get the, I don't even know, do they have 5K screens out or whatever it is? That amazes us. Like, whoa, I, it feels like I can just walk right into my TV. It's pretty cool. Like virtual reality, that amazes us. We look at these things. What are we doing? We're hungering for something that amazes us. Folks, if God is not the center of our amazement, there's something wrong in our Christian walk. He needs to be our highest treasure, our greatest pursuit. And if we have become familiar with him and we're not amazed by him anymore, then we're not looking at him. Because as A.W. Tozer said, if you can understand it, it's not God. It should constantly amaze us who God is and what he has done. Next, uh, technology distracts from reality. It's a distraction from pain. It numbs us. So instead of running to God as our comfort and our source of strength, we run to other things that <clears throat> keep us occupied. Many of us run to our screens rather than prayer. We're stressed at work. What do we do? Scroll, 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 scroll. What are we looking at? Nothing. Just don't want to be looking at that over there. The workload, the deadlines. We get distracted. We text, we blog, we post, we watch until we're numb. I wonder if our screen time and our prayer time, how they match up. How many of us get up in the morning, and again, I'm so guilty of this, and this really checks me. How many of us get up in the morning and check our screens before anything else? And yet God says, Peter said, it's really God through Peter, casting all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. And I wonder, do I listen to the voice of God first thing in the morning or do I listen to the voices of culture before anything else? Technology is a source of self-affirmation as well. We've looked at this a little bit with the effect of identity crisis. We run to idols that agree with us. We run to idols that never confront us. Why do you think the Greeks were making forms or images from their own imagination? It's their own concept of what God should be like. It's never complete, so they have to just continually make an infinite number of gods. Technology has promised self-affirmation, but it never delivers. And in the process of us promoting ourselves in a certain light, in a certain image, we end up secluded. We end up separated from others because nobody really knows who we really are. We've put an image of ourselves. It's not true. And yet John tells us in 1 John 1, we started today in chapter 5, but in chapter 1 he said, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And I would suggest 
that part of walking in darkness is the idea that you're not walking according to who you are, who you really are, authentically. You're walking in darkness. You say you have fellowship with him, but then you're hiding. You're wearing a disguise. We lie. We don't practice the truth. What happens? We get separated from each other. We don't let anybody in. Nobody really knows us. But if we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. See, if God is revealing everything that I am, and he is the source of my image, and it's according to who he created me to be and how he forgave me of my sin and so on and how he died for me, when that's the case, we have fellowship one with another. We can let each other into our lives. That's what John is saying. And... On top of that, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. So it takes care of all the sin that it exposes. The blood of Jesus is continuously cleansing us in our experience from all sin. That's the idea. As sin comes into our life, yes, we've once for all been saved at conversion, but the word cleanses in an ongoing effect and so on. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And yet we've become lonelier than ever before. Well, that leads us to the last point that we want to look into. We're going to look at Romans chapter 12 for a few moments and uh, just go briefly into, we're not going to exhaust this chapter, but we're going to cover it. You can take it home. You can read through it on your own. I'm going to give you just a few headings for this. And this should get you started on basic principles for living, how, how scripture teaches us to live between these two extremes of individualism and collectivism. How do we meet in the middle? Because in the Bible, community is really important. No, you should not be just sitting at home doing Zoom church. God commands us to meet together in person as a community of Christians. He does. It's scripture. However, That does not erase the value of the individual within that community. The individual is equally important. So how do we deal with this and how do we navigate this in our lives with our technology and all that we have? What do we do? Well, Paul's letter to the Romans is a systematic systematic explanation of the gospel and how it impacts culture, individuals, communities, nations, and the world. We're going to take a deeper dive just for a few moments, into Paul's instructions for responding to God's grace towards us in Jesus Christ. He instructs us in how to live as individuals in a diverse community. In other words, how to have unity and diversity. That's what university means. That's where it comes from, unity and diversity. The first thing is give up the rights to your life, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your identity as an individual starts when you face the reality of who you are. This is gospel for a moment. I don't assume that everyone in this room is a believer in Christ or is a disciple of Christ. I'm not going to assume that or take that for granted. Paul, back at the beginning of this epistle in Romans, teaches us that we are rebels against God and that we deserve the righteous wrath of God. Yes, he is angry, righteously angry with our rebellion, with our sin. 
We've turned against him. He's a righteous judge. But God is also not just perfectly just, he is also perfectly loving, and he has made a way, a plan by which we can stand in his courtroom and he can righteously tell us, your case is dismissed. The only way that's happening is if someone else takes our penalty on themselves. So Paul explains all of this. He calls it being justified. You need to be justified by faith. That's the beginning of it. And then he goes on to show how we need to be sanctified and how God has sent his Holy Spirit to just walk with us, alongside us, and support us in our struggle between two realities going on within our flesh. One is we're still in Adam. And we're still prone towards sin and selfishness because we're still broken in our humanity. But the other is the Holy Spirit. We're in Christ now. And because of that, we have these two realities that are fighting within us. And the Holy Spirit is guiding us and teaching us and leading us and praying for us, interceding for us with God and so on. And we're going to win this fight. Paul says all of that. Your identity as an individual starts there. You need to see your identity in the gospel before anything else, justified by the mercy of God. And if that's true, then it's not just you giving up the right of your, to your life, it's you realizing you have no right to your life. That's why he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, everything he's already explained, God has been so merciful that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Your individual life is no longer owned by you. Let that guide every social media post. The moment you look to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you forfeited all rights to your life. That's first. Secondly, transform your thinking. Romans, 2, Romans 12 verse 2 tells us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That distracted, noisy mind that... The idols are seeking to take over and enslave. He says, don't be conformed. Be transformed by renewing your mind and by testing, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that it is good, acceptable, and perfect. In other words, what God wants you to do, face it. Te technology is conforming your mind every single day. So how do we allow ourselves to be transformed? Here's a few little principles I'm going to give you. First of all, recognize the grip your screens have on you. Recognize it. If you're enslaved, acknowledge it. Secondly, practice regular fasting from technology. Fasting is a biblical principle that all Christians should practice. Food is usually, because food is a, let's say, a natural appetite or a natural addiction, if you don't get fed, your body goes crazy, right? So food is often looked at as the, uh, the object of fasting, but technology can be as well, especially when it's enslaving you. In other words, make your smartphone a stupid phone for a while. Take all the apps off. Remove apps that have been wasting your time. I remember one time I was, so, uh, I, I was playing Candy Crush so much you know, I'd say, oh, I'm just playing it, you know, in my spare time. But it was so bad that when I would close my eyes to pray, all I could see were little candies exploding all over the place. It was like, enough, 
I know I'm going to lose all my points and everything else, but it's gone. It's not worth it. It was driving me nuts. Practice regular fasting. Set boundaries. Please set boundaries. Certain times in the day should be electronic free. Morning devotions. Dinner time. In two weeks' time, we're going to look at the family and how culture is attacking the family. Dinner time is central and is so crucial. I can't get that across enough. But dinner time should be a time when phones are not allowed at the table, when families get together and communicate person to person, face to face with each other. It is the glue that holds a family together. Phones should not be allowed. I'm being dogmatic, but there's a reason for it. Set the boundaries and bedtime, set a bedtime and keep it. Don't let your phone keep you up at night. Keep your phones out of the bedrooms, married couples. Focus on each other in the bedroom, not on screens. Keep it sacred. Boundaries, set them, keep them. And I'm going to challenge the dads in this room. You are the leaders of your home. This is your role to lead your family and set those boundaries. Your children may be angry with you at first, but they will thank you later. They will appreciate it later. Teach them to set the boundaries. Teach these habits to your children. Sleep regularly. We've looked at that already. Make sure you get enough sleep. Focus on face-to-face relationships. All of this is a way in which we renew our minds. Only then can we sit down with Scripture and actually have a clear and quiet mind to be able to receive what God is saying to us and to be able to pray with clarity. So transform your, your thinking. If you're seeking what God wants you to do from your selfish perspective or from my selfish perspective or from what social media told me about God's will, you're never going to be in the right place. It's going to be distorted. Paul's saying, remove all of that. Stop being conformed by the culture. Transform your mind. Transform your thinking so that you can actually understand what it is God has for you. Third, take a sober self-assessment is verse three. Paul says, "For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That means stop making an image or an identity for yourself online. Stop thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to. Stop imagining what you're good at. Stop thinking about what you're amazing at and why everyone should bow to you and no one should ever confront you. Paul says, no, please stop this, but think with sober judgment, serious judgment, like ground level judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The measure of faith, what is he talking about? He's talking about your capacity to serve. God has given each of us a measure of faith by which we can function inside the kingdom of God. Some he's given more, some less, doesn't matter. He's given each of us something to do, something that we're good at. One of the key ways that we take a sober self-assessment is to keep our ears open to what others say to us, especially those who care for us. If you want to be on the worship team, but you can't keep a tune, someone close to you is probably going to let you know. You should listen to that, not get all hurt by it. Oh, this is horrible. How can I live another day? 
This is all I ever wanted to do. My, my fan is, or my idol is Justin Bieber. And I just want to be like him, sorry. Just stop that, okay? Be realistic, Paul is saying. You're not so-and-so. You're not your favorite sports star. You're not, you're, maybe you're not going to be a pastor or a missionary. Okay, just with sober judgment, start listening to what others say about you. And they're going to say things like, I really like this about you. I really like how you did that. That was good. Or maybe you should redirect your attention here. That's not a reason to be disappointed or discouraged. It's a reason to listen, to take that as an assessment of the measure of faith that God has assigned me. That's who I am. That's who I am. I'm not you. You're not me. This is who I am. That's okay. Part of this is learning our personalities. Whether we're quieter, louder, introvert, extrovert, and so on. We're not supposed to be obsessed with this, but only from the standpoint that we're going to use this. We're going to launch out of this into a a life that is meaningful in the world. And by the way, um, I I can tell you, what am I, 42? I'm losing count. Um, I was telling one of my boys just the other night that I'm at a particular age right now where life is beginning to go really, really, really fast. And watching my kids grow uh, and remember, and they were like babies yesterday, I think. I think it was yesterday. And now they're not. Um, Life is going really fast. And the only thing that matters to me now, folks, and I, I especially want younger people in this room to hear this because life might not be going as fast for you right now. The only thing that matters to me now is just living a life that matters, living a life that is going to be worthwhile, meaningful in God's redemptive history. That's all that matters. And I don't care what that looks like. I don't care what that looks like. If, if that means um, serving on the greeting team at Harvest Bible Church, if that means um, serving in the Sunday school at a Harvest Bible, if, if that means serving at a different church, if that means planting a church, if it means working as a mechanic or working as a doctor or whatever it means. Just do it with all your might, but you won't learn that until you self-assess and find out what God made you to do. What does that lead to? Find what God made you to do and do it. Romans 12, 4, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. In other words, they're all different. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, find what God wants you to do and focus on it. Do it with all your might, with all your strength. Pour it into it and see where God takes you in it. This may take years to figure out what he has gifted you to do. 
But whatever is right in front of you right now, do it. You may find out that it's what you were meant to do or you see tremendous fruit and blessing out of it or it may be something that you say, "Ah, I'm going to move on from this. But do what's in front of you. Don't be waiting for the perfect thing to come along. Do what's in front of you. And as you do, God will guide you. And over time, there are different chapters in our life, different we, we reach different ages, and as we do, we have different spheres of relevance and different areas that we can speak into. I'm not going to be doing this all the time, I, I assume. I don't know. Um, and I'm ready for that. Just the idea of just be content as you go through life to just continually do what God puts in front of you and do it with all your might. Next Interact with other Christians. Here it is. This is how individuals, how individuals interact in a community. Paul says, let love be genuine. Yes, as you serve, as you minister, as you function daily with what God has gifted you to do, what, God, what abilities God has given you to do, you're going to interact with people. And he says, here are the qualities that I want, the characteristics of your work that I want. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. No Christian is intended to live as an island, all on your own, in your basement, with Zoom church. Not supposed to be doing that. The whole purpose of God is to serve others and to serve alongside others. We will face conflicts, we will face annoyances, but we are to live out the gospel towards others in our community. This is real life. In real life, we need connections, we need small groups, we need horizontal friendships in order to live a vertical life. The last one, love your enemies. Yes, you're not going to serve God without making enemies. I'm just telling you now. You want to serve God and be everybody's friend? Good luck. Paul ends this section by saying in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or prideful, but associate with the lowly. Don't be a snob. Never never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. That is really an image of conviction, right? You're convicting his conscience. You're making him sense his own guilt because you haven't treated him in kind. Therefore, he has no excuse for why he treated you so badly when you treated him goodly. 
I think that's a word. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the reasons we'd rather face, have our faces in our screens is because it's far more comfortable than facing real life and real people. Why do you think the pornography industry is so, so uh, effective, so profitable? People would rather indulge in something virtual to gratify them than they would in reality, real relationships, real intimacy that leads to conflict and so on and having to work that out. No, we'd rather have our faces in our screens because it's more comfortable than having to face anyone who disagrees with us who, are, who might be angry with us. But Paul calls us to bless our persecutors, to rejoice with the rejoicing, to weep with the weeping. Yes, to rejoice with the rejoicing even when you're not rejoicing. It's hard to do sometimes when someone else just got something you didn't. It's hard to rejoice with them. Paul says to do it and to weep with the weeping, even when you're not the one weeping. To gain wisdom from the counsel of others, do not seek revenge or hold grudges. Overcome evil with good. That's what it means to live as individuals in community. Technology and the idolatry of technology has totally distorted that in our culture, where now most people are divided, separated, polarized, isolated, working more with machines than with human beings. But God calls us to a higher standard of living, and he calls us to a, a community that when the culture looks into a, this kind of community, uncommon community, that's what we call it here. It's attractive. There's something these people have that we don't have. So don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's our content for tonight. Next week, just to, again, to give a, a little brief uh, precursor to next week, we're gonna look at the effects of, uh, sorry, we're looking at the effects of technology on culture tonight, but that leads to a discussion of the sexualization of culture. And culture is making disciples in sexuality through its media, among other sources, but mainly through its media. And how should the church and individual Christians respond? What does biblical discipleship and disciple-making have to do with sexual ethics? We're going to look at that next week. I bet you've never looked at disciple-making and sexuality on the same night, but that's exactly what we're going to look at. Uh, because it is a religion, folks. It has become a religion, I had some questions, look at that. Some of them that aren't even from this class, but that's okay. Um, real brief, we've got a few minutes here, not very many, but uh, as, uh, here's a question. As technology continues to advance in culture, by the way, I, I reserve the right to say I don't know, okay, just before we go anywhere. So as technology continues to advance in culture, how should the, how should the church respond to its appropriate use or not in our ministries to reach people, the believer and the unbeliever? That's an awesome question. And hopefully we have covered 
some of that tonight already. Um, obviously, there's, there needs to be leadership. First of all, we are a church that is governed by ruling elders. And those are discussions that um, the elders take uh, as far as directing the church in that way. I mean, it always has to come up. Whenever technology is introduced to the church, is this going to be a distraction or is this going to help? Um, uh, in its appropriate use or not in our ministries to reach people. So that's a, evangelism is another area as well that I hadn't, uh, I don't think I discussed tonight very well, but um, social media is a great tool for evangelism, isn't it? It's a great way to get information out there. Problem is we're competing with a whole lot of other information at the same time. So that can be uh, discouragement, but it is a way, and we should as a church be looking into ways to use media um, to make movies, to make uh, television series, to make YouTube, whatever you call it, I don't know what the terms are, but to, to, make, to be creative in these as well, to get scriptural truth out to people on platforms that they're actually watching, they're actually listening to. So um, definitely, while we walk this balancing line between idolatry and tools, we want to use it as a tool, and we want to say yes. The church should have ministries that are, you know, directing media and how media is used. And there are many ministries out there that do this very well. I, I would say personally, my personal opinion is um, that as Christians, I, who am I to judge, but I really do think we have to get better at making movies that people will watch. That's just my opinion. It's probably useless, maybe I'm wrong, but, um, or making movies that connect with people on deep levels. There's actually a, a larger conversation that could be had on that. There have been producers in Hollywood that have been believers who have tried to depict realities in the world in ways that are vivid and real. Um, that people will indeed watch. Uh, but there's not a lot of that. Most of Hollywood is controlled by uh, the other side, and we know that. Um, I was told, by the way, last week that Disney Plus now shows uh, those movies that I said were canceled, um, but with a disclaimer now, and they're in the adult section. They're not in the kids' section of Disney Plus anymore. So warning, whatever you do, if you go and watch Jungle Book, look out. Okay, here we go. How would you respond to being a good and hard worker using technology in the workplace, which allows for higher demands because of the technology uh, enables you to do? This busies our minds and increases the pressures. What's the remedy? Yes, okay, so... And I, I was in this category working in uh, machine programming for a while. Again, I think it has to do with boundaries. Um, so what would happen is I would come home from work at the end of the day, working in controls engineering, where the whole day was with robots and systems and laptops and phones and... Uh, it was just constant, and it was a rat race. You could hardly, I could hardly get to my desk in the morning without people, you know, just a barrage. The phone was going off before I'd get to work uh, of things. So, yeah, at the end of the day, so 
again, this, to be countercultural folks, we don't have to always be in the rat race. So while I was at work, yes, I was giving my time to the company and I would join the rat race for a few hours. But there came a time when my family was my first priority and the other stuff was going to have to wait. I could care less if there was a machine on fire. I mean, I care, but the machine is not going to live for eternity somewhere. My kids are. So my phone would be in a room by itself, and people would get the message after a while. Hey, you want an answer? Maybe not, maybe not try him on the weekends. We know where he's at. Most of, most of my colleagues knew I was at church on Sunday anyways, so they didn't even try calling me because they knew where I was at, because I wouldn't answer anyways. Just don't answer. So there are ways to not respond to the culture and, uh, and, and give them what they're looking for. But it, these tools are inevitable. They're, we have to use them. We have to. Uh, cell phone makers as well as app programmers have actually made these devices to be habit-forming. Yes, you're right. It's a good point. These devices have been designed, and I think that comes out in The Social Dilemma, um, if you watch it, that these devices have been designed to keep you scrolling, to keep you clicking, to keep you baited, right? The clickbait. They're designed, they always, and they always promise these things that never quite happen. Watch to the end, right? Wait for it. <laughs> and you get to the end, I was like, what was that all about? I don't know. Some video about a dog. He was eating his food. I don't, guess it's cute. Um, yeah, I think that's it for tonight. Um, so thank you again for listening. And hopefully you'll come back next week. Let's pray and then we can go. Father, thank you for calling us out of this culture. By your grace, it's not our own doing, it's yours. Thank you for calling us, showing us Christ, revealing to us his death and resurrection for us on our behalf. We did all the sinning, he did all the saving. And Lord, as you've called us, you're calling us still to clear our minds and to think clearly, think biblically in a world that is demanding our time and voices that are constantly screaming at us either through our, what we see with our eyes or what we hear with our, our ears. Uh, Lord, we're living in a, a, a noisy, noisy world. We just ask you, Lord, to challenge us tonight to move back to a biblical perspective of these things, maybe to retrace our steps from where we've gotten off track. And again, learn patience, learn stillness, learn what it means to wait on you and learn what it means to know who we are because of Christ and then to be able to live that out in community, not just with believers, but Lord, with unbelievers as well, that they can look at us and see something uh, that draws them to you. We ask you for all these things, Lord, uh, with uh, the, the notion, with the goal that you would be glorified in everything that has been said tonight in Christ's name, amen.